The goal of this podcast is to offer a platform for people to tell their personal stories about how the recent U.S. political climate has directly affected them and how past experiences have shaped their current views. There may be times when you find yourself disagreeing with the opinions or experiences described on this podcast. We're not here to judge or take sides, so please listen with an open mind and heart. Welcome to Community Voices. We're listening. Welcome to the next episode of Community Voices, We're Listening. And today we have my friend Pablo Molden on the podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome. So Pablo is a member of the LGBT community, and he's a strong advocate for medically accurate sex education in Virginia. And so we wanted to have him on this episode. We just want to discuss his background um, and his coming out experiences and your advocacy surrounding sex education reform in Virginia. So... Thanks so much for being here. And um, we'll start. I kind of wanted to ask you a question that I know you get a lot. When um, people hear your name, they'll say, you know, something along the lines of, what's the story behind your name? Or where did, where does your name come from? So do you want to start by talking about that? Uh, basically, it. I, I've actually had someone... Um, where uh, she she was like, and I'm not I'm not like making any stereotypes here. This is exactly how she sounded and what she said. And she's like, oh my god, your name's Pablo. <laughs> wow, you don't look Mexican. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I was like, wow. I was giving her credit because I was brave. Like I thought yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was that was quite the admission. <laughs> um, and uh, except she had no idea. <laughs> My dad is from here. He was actually born in Amarillo, Texas, grew up in Northern Virginia, and. Um, my mom is from Uruguay, Montevideo, Uruguay, which is, um, for those who don't know, most don't, <laughs> it's between <laughs> Brazil and Argentina. It's a really tiny country. Um, and I remember I was so, I was so angry one day I got fed up and I was on Facebook <laughs> and I, I wrote a rant. <laughs> it was very long. <laughs> and, uh, I, in that, in that rant, I, I, I took a, a um, an image of uh, like a map of North and South and Central America, and I went in on Microsoft Paint and I edited out all of the countries' names and I just put Mexico on <laughs> the entire, uh, even on the, the the Galapagos Islands right off the coast. <laughs> and I was like, because it's so like I think like the, there's like um, oh my god twenty what twenty three Spanish speaking countries. Um, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and I just, you know, so I, I like to break that stereotype with some humor or if days where I'm not, I don't have the patience, like it'll be great. <laughs> so I can basically list, go on and on and on about Uruguay. I'm very obsessed. Awesome. But, That's cool. You're proud of your heritage and your, yeah. your, your culture. Yeah. That's absolutely. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about is your coming out experience because we're both members of the LGBT community. And um, so I wanted to, and I think you you came out at, at 15, I believe that's true. And I just wanted mm-hmm. to ask you about um, how that experience was for you. And yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I did come out at 15. Um, I actually realized at an earlier age, I was um, <laughs> actually going back to Uruguay. Um, I don't know if y'all remember um, that uh, episode of The Simpsons. Homer is, is, you know, looking on the globe. And he lands on Uruguay, and he's like, ha ha, 
you're gay. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, Uruguay is how they, they say it um, in English. So, and I had like every um, person and in, in every guy that came up with that, you know, taunt in, in elementary school. They were all so proud of themselves because they all felt like they were the first person to tell me that joke. <laughs> and they thought they were so hilarious. They got tiring after a while. So I was taunted a little bit, um, for, you know, a little bit verbally uh, for being gay. Um, um, I didn't know it at the time. I didn't even know what the word was. I was in fifth grade, but I realized I was different. I just, something about me was different. Um, and then I thought in middle school, um, I sort of started you know, thinking, oh, maybe I'm bisexual, because I, I know I had um, crushes on guys, and but I was still, you know, dating um, girls, um, and, you know, I, I, that's the route I was taking, and then I, I, I realized um, that I was gay in high school, my freshman year. Um, and just to touch up on that, because um, that's what a lot of people think um, bisexuality is, it's a transition phase. Um, and that's not true. Uh, I know uh, some people who um, are bisexual actually went the other way around in terms of what they thought they were, which is they thought they were, you know, gay because they were dating the same sex. And then they started realizing that they liked the opposite sex. And then they're like, oh, no, wait, what, what am I? Oh, maybe, maybe I'm straight. And, and it's just because of this culture of this binary culture around sexual orientation um, that's, uh, excuse my language, it's total bullshit. <laughs> um, and so sometimes it's, they, anyone comes to a conclusion on their sexual orientation because of what they feel like they have to be. Um, and, and, and it gets in the way of them finding who they truly are. Um, and so for me, I thought I was bisexual because I had to have some sort of you know, even just a semblance of heterosexuality. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I was like, hang on to it. And mm -hmm. for some people, that is their truth. Um, but this just happened to be me just having a hard time um, finding out who I was. And um, and I came out to my parents um, when I was a sophomore in high school. And I sat them down for dinner, um, and after dinner, and... I was like really having a hard time. They were so, they were, they are amazing parents and they were so supportive of everything. Um, but I just was so afraid that for some reason this was going to be the one thing that they weren't. And I said, you know, uh, mom, dad, I'm gay. And my mom started crying. Um, she was really upset. And I, I didn't understand what was happening. I was like, what? Oh my God. Uh, but they explained they were just so s scared because they felt helpless. Like, what can they do to help me? Because they figured that now my life was going to be really hard, that maybe I was going to get beaten up at school or, um, you know, teased or I wasn't going to find a job or what have you. Um, but my dad said, you know, you know, you're our son, and that's all that matters. We love you. Good job, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's the right response. Yeah, so my, my that was both of their responses, but that's my great. mom was so caught up on what it's going to be like. But, I mean, she'd be like, I'll, I'll show up to your, <laughs> you know, if you get married, I'll be there. Um, 
That's great. And yeah. I think that it's that speaks to the the quality of parents that you have too because yeah. I think I think if any if any parents aren't worried even just a little bit. Yeah. You know, it's cuz she cares. So, you know, Absolutely. and I think that it, it was coming from the right place and actually I can kind of relate to that cuz that was kind of my parents' reaction as well. Like they were very supportive but also scared. And like they would tell me, you know, they're worried that it, they were worried about what society would think, kind of, and how that how society would impact me, and yeah, and it all came from a place of love and support. So, and I knew, and I knew that, which helped a lot. So, yeah, so that's that's good. I'm glad I'm glad they're on board, and even if they're worried about it, I mean, that's they're good parents. <laughs> I, I I feel lucky, and I shouldn't, because that shouldn't be something uh, that happens. That only non-heterosexual uh, and non-binary and non-cisgender kids um, only have supportive parents if they're lucky. <laughs> it shouldn't be about luck. Agreed. But I, I think it I think it is. I feel very grateful that, I mean, there are a lot of other reasons as to why they're amazing and why I'm so lucky to have them. But that's definitely, definitely one of them. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. Yeah. Well, and I know, so, so you, you kind of had to come out twice in your life like you came out as gay and then you also later on in life a couple years after you came out you had to come out as HIV positive as Mm -hmm. well so I was wondering if you would kind of talk about that and how you told your family and how that's affected your life um yeah I did have to come out twice I actually had to come out several times (laughs) (laughs) I think maybe I should start the beginning how I got there absolutely I think this this is going to lead up to uh, something that I have not shut up about for the past <laughs> four months, <laughs> and I'm really tired of thinking about it, honestly. <laughs> and then for once in my life, I'm starting to get tired of hearing the sound of my own voice, <laughs> something I usually love hearing, <laughs> um, especially when it's talking about me, but I'm kind of getting done <laughs> with it. Um, but I can handle it for another 30 minutes, I guess. Uh, <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So, um, I think it started, um, with my sex education, um, and the sex education that my peers received. So I was going to, um, James Madison High School in Fairfax County Public Schools in Northern Virginia. And, um, my sophomore year, and this had been the, I think the second time that I had received sex, sex ed. Um, the first time was just like about your bodily functions and like your reproductive organs and it was like very like medical and not very useful <laughs> it was in middle school that i was gonna say is that middle school yeah 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 okay. and it was like it was not memorable so i don't remember much of it so <laughs> yeah um they tried uh but i remember in sophomore year they they showed us a video while we were in our it was in our health class it wasn't really dedicated to sex ed it was just a segment of our of our health class curriculum and they were showing us a video and it was this really low budget, really grainy, terrible writing. I mean, the least relatable PSA video that I've probably seen in my entire life. <laughs> and it was like from the mid 90s. So it's like, what, this was 2005, so it's 10 years old from one of the richest count, county, the richest county in the, in the country at that point. So they clearly could have avoided something, afforded something better. Um, anyways, and there's a scene and they're comparing a woman who has multiple sex partners, um, to a piece of chewed gum. And, uh, it was interesting. It was like some really corny, um, 
whitewashed scene uh, and there's this you know guy named Johnny or something and it's like Johnny wouldn't want to sleep with Sally because Sally's been sleeping around uh, just like how you wouldn't want to have a piece of chewed gum in your mouth and it it's so interesting that one they chose a woman for that and <laughs> not a man um, <laughs> and interesting is, is maybe not the right word um, but that was the impression that our uh, that my peers were, 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 were getting, which was um, women sleep around and, um, you know, having more than one sex partner is bad. Um, it was state-sponsored, tax-funded slut-shaming. And it was incredible that the state was telling our kids that you're a slut if you have sex with more than one person and certainly if you have sex before marriage. Who's going to want to talk about sex with their partner if they're afraid of being persecuted as a slut by their peers. And see, that's the thing. Sex education is not just about disseminating information, which we need. Um, How to use a condom, um, access to birth control where you can find it, Um, you know, what are are the methods of, of, of safe sex? and how your body functions, but it's, I think, as equally, if not more important to teach our kids to be comfortable talking about sex. That video and that entire class was so counterproductive to that. And when I was in Richmond and I was testifying in front of the House Education Committee, I was telling them that that shame is, and that fear is the source of STD infections and unwanted pregnancies, because they're not talking about sex. And if you don't talk about sex, then you are not applying anything you've learned. So there's no point. Um, so that's the starting point that me and my friends and my classmates had at James Madison High School. And then I found, um, my soon-to-be boyfriend at that time. And I remember when we were gonna first have sex after getting uh, Ted, we had known each other for a while and I had been able to filter out all of the nonsense and inaccuracy from from my sex education. So I, I was, you know, talking about sex. I was like, you know, um, we're going to have sex, like, I just want to know a few things, like, do you want to be monogamous? And I, I spelled that out as in, you know, only having sex with one other person, um, mutually being monogamous. And he's, he said, yes. I said, okay. Um, are you a virgin? And he said, it's okay if you're not. Um, I just want to know, I I am a virgin and I just want to know if we're going to talk about using condoms, like that's important. And he said yes. And at that point, 
there was no risk of getting infected with an STD because there was no, we had not exchanged any bodily fluids with, with anyone, um, in which an STD could be transmitted according to what we had told each other other than, and like, we know we, we, our moms were HIV negative. Like we weren't breastfed HIV positive breast milk. And like we weren't using intravenous um, drug needles. We weren't sharing needles with anyone like the we three other oh, 360 was there's no risk or so i thought i think there was one factor that i i left out that is a risk no matter who you decide to have sex with and that's trust um so we we did have condom with sex and we did get into a relationship it was on and off for three years. I remember one day we were having sex and we consented to oral and anal sex. We consented to that. So it was going, it's going well. Like, you know, it's usually pretty good. <laughs> so, you know, no, no, no complaints, but um, midway through, like it was hurting. And so I changed my mind. I, I didn't want to anymore. Um, and I was very explicit about that. I, I asked him to stop. And he didn't listen. I was trying to push him off. Um, and at the time, I, I really hadn't thought that it was rape. Um, we're, we're implicitly taught in our culture, and explicitly sometimes. Certainly for me, it was more of an implicit thing where men can't get raped. It's this delusion that you know, men are better than women and men are stronger than women. And so we're, we're exempt from that vulnerability. We, we don't have that weakness. Only women do. Now, I never bought the bullshit where men are better than women. That never, I, I just knew that intellectually from experience. Like, <laughs> no. <laughs> You know, like, it's just a fact we're all human. Um, and that is the only qualifier for being able to get uh, um, raped, is, like, to be human, to be a species, part of that species. Um, but it was this somehow this notion of men not being able to get raped that was in my head. And, oh, I just wasn't strong enough, it was my fault. Or, you know, I should have said it from the beginning, and my, my, my ex had convinced me that it wasn't, um, but it was. Um, and I told my, I told my psychiatrist that, thank God I had one. Um, and I think, I think I can't quite remember, but that was the time when he started my psychiatrist to pay for cabs to, so that I can go from my appointment to Witten Walker Health to get tested for HIV. Hmm. He, I think he was starting to see that trust factor um, was something that needed to be addressed, like it was urgent. And that happened twice. <laughs> I have never heard of anyone psychiatrist paying their client money so that they can get tested because they didn't want their parents to know or because for me, I, I literally tried biking to the clinic after school and every time I tried, I missed it. <laughs> 
um, and I couldn't get tested. So I don't know. I'm so lucky. I can't believe I had, he was amazing for many other reasons, but like that blew my mind. I was like, what's happening? Um, so that was great. I got tested negative, H, um, HIV negative each time. And then, and then I was 17. Um, I had been involved with the Northern Virginia AIDS ministry and their LGBT youth group. Um, it was really cool. Again, how lucky I am. And it was called the Orion, um, program. And it was for under 18, um, kids, uh, LGBT kids in Northern Virginia. And so we'd get around, uh, we'd gather around for like group meetings or we'd go on outings to malls and just have like a day of activities or museums or whatever. They, um, they put on, um, gay prom, <laughs> which is really cool. That That's was awesome. like, a yeah, <laughs> what a privilege. That was awesome. Uh, so that was pretty cool. And, and one day I went with my friend, Birgit. Um, she's amazing. Um, we went together to this LGBT sexual health education event that was thrown by Novam, the Northern Virginia AIDS Ministry. And that was the most comprehensive sex, sex education I have ever seen to this day. It was amazing. Um, and I remember... Uh, not enough students went, and they had a separate, like, male and, and female, um, you know, uh, curriculum, but they combined us together because there just wasn't enough people there. And so all the, you know, the gay guy kids are like, ew, when they're talking about vaginas. <laughs> <laughs> and I wasn't actually. I was kind of proud of myself. <laughs> I was interested. Um and Just like bodies. Yeah. yeah. And I was like a, such a like an overachiever. Like I was that <laughs> instead of in like math or whatever, always raising my hand for those kids I, I, for those kinds of things. I was the one like, oh, yeah, I know how to use a condom. And oh, I know what a dental dam is. And I was like, ooh. I was literally the only one raising my hand. And everyone's looking at me like, could you just put your hand down? <laughs> Cut it out. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So that was like the only class that I ever <laughs> Was that kind of canon? So, <laughs> um, and anyways, so they're showing us that. And then afterwards, there's two HIV positive people speaking from their face-to-face program. And that was the first time I'd ever in my life gotten the opportunity to have someone who's open about their HIV status talking about HIV. That's incredible. Yeah. I couldn't even, I couldn't imagine the schools that I went to having someone who's HIV positive come and speak, much less two people. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, and this was outside of school. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah this was outside of school. This is a Novam doing it independently. That makes sense, then. Of, yeah. Um, that's why the sex ed was so comprehensive, and they right. addressed, you know, birth control, and they addressed all the things that they don't address for women's health or um, in general. Um, and the stories were very hard to listen to. Um they had seen a lot. They had been di- they had been diagnosed since the nineties, um, and then right thirty minutes later, I was diagnosed with HIV, and it was through a, like an oral swab. Uh, um, it's called a, pre- a, pre- a preliminary uh, field test, um, much like the ones you would the first te- you, test you would get if you went to a clinic to get tested, and. I tested positive twice because I wanted to check to make sure. And my friend 
luckily she was she was there she was you know i wasn't planning on getting tested but she we both did and um she was there and i was a wreck and i drove us there but i couldn't drive um i was just distraught i knew i was going to be okay i didn't think the world was going to end but like it was just very hard what was going through your mind i felt ashamed uh i felt dirty I felt like a slut. Um, and, you know, like, it was my fault. And, oh, maybe I'm not positive. I need, I still need to get the confirmatory test at the hospital um, to confirm my diagnosis. So maybe, maybe I'm not. Like, there's a lot of things going through my mind. And she, my friend Birgit, she drove us uh, to get burgers. And... Uh, <laughs> She was totally winging this, I could tell. Um, but she got us one one drink and one straw. And it was such a small thing. Um, and that I don't think she still doesn't realize. Um, you know, I've told this to her over and over again, and she's like, this isn't a big deal. But for me, when she when she was offering to share that straw with me, she was implicitly saying, you know, you're the same... Pablo, before your diagnosis, and I love you just the same. And that uh, sense of normalcy and um, that kind of friendship, really, I I will never forget that. God, I'm so lucky. (laughs) And, And that's like through my whole story. It's just how lucky I am, despite everything. Um... And she was an example, I feel like. I shouldn't, again, this shouldn't be lucky. HIV positive people shouldn't be receiving support and being treated normally because they're lucky. It should just be a standard thing, but I definitely was. She, um, and so she was an example of that sex positivity and that um, just positive mindset. And she's de- she still doesn't think it's a big deal. She's always like, well, I don't understand. Like, why wouldn't I do that? <laughs> so, anyways. So, um, Northern Gene AIDS Ministry, again, amazing. They drove me to the hospital, um, like, uh, days later. And they actually waited in the lobby while I was getting my HIV test. Wow. Yeah, drawing the blood. And then they drove me again a week later to get my results. And again, they waited in the lobby. And they were there for me the whole way through. And uh, I remember when I got the confirmatory results um, from the nurse. I I knew I was going to be okay. But, like, I was just in shock. You know, I, I, I had a feeling going to the hospital that I, was, that I was positive, definitely. Just because, thinking back on my ex, I mean, he was so... Uh, abusive and he always was dragging his feet into the sex conversation I always feel like I was dragging him along and like engaging and always being minimal um, I, I had an idea I was I, w- I in my head I was like thinking there's a part of me like no 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 it's not him like I still loved him and all that stuff but there's a part of me that like knew that it was him and not my other sex partner because I had sex with two people by the time that I was diagnosed but my other um, sex partner, who was my friend, 
he got tested every three months. He was never dragging his feet in the sex conversation. It was always a complete, um, trustworthy, respectful, um, kind of connection with him and him just being such a responsible person. And so when I was in the parking lot later, just for the audience, by the way, when you get tested in the state of Virginia and you get tested positive, they offer a, um, a service where they will actually disclose your diagnosis for you anonymously if you, if you, if you choose to give them like emails or phone numbers or whatever. Hmm. Because it's so important that people know that they're at risk and then you get tested, but they want to make sure people are, are anonymous and they have their privacy. I said no because like I can handle it. It's fine. Um, and so in the parking lot, I cried myself my, my eyes out for a couple hours and then I called my ex first and it's not even worth describing the conversation. He just denied everything. He dismissed it um, clearly out of fear and arrogance and ignorance and then he hung up on me and then when I called my other partner uh, my friend he was crying on the phone and I thought he was scared that he was positive but he said no I know I'm not I get tested all the time I know my status but I'm I'm worried about you are you okay and he lives in Baltimore right at the time he did that's like an hour drive, but he was like, hey, um, if you need someone, I will drive over today. We can cuddle. I'm going to hold you. I'm here for you. And it was so, like, why? It was such a, a, a mind f. Uh, <laughs> because I was like, why was I in love with this person? Why was I in love with this uh, abuser? And... Um, that, you know, love doesn't work that way. You know, you don't get to choose. I found out later, my ex told me to my face, and there was no remorse. There was no regret or guilt. I was almost pride. He looked proud of it when he told me that he had cheated on me with 10 other people while we were in a relationship. Whoa. And um, that he lied about being a virgin. Which is the whole, that is why I decided to not have used condoms with him the first time was because he said he was a virgin and he wanted to be monogamous. I think he could have been conditioned as a child to be sex positive and maybe these things wouldn't have happened. Um, maybe he would have gotten tested for HIV instead of will, choosing not to. But that's not the education that he had to work with now i'm not putting the onus on the state or the government like or the teachers like he made those choices personal responsibility so i felt like i had to do something because i knew that he was probably cheating on other people and you know rape isn't usually something that happens once that is committed once by a person and i just thought that other people were getting diagnosed with hiv and i was panicking and I realized it wasn't my, I eventually realized I wasn't, that's not my responsibility. And I had to drop it. And that's really hard to accept that. So I, I found, I found, um, I was on YouTube because I had, like I said, I had a psychiatrist. So I was proactive about my mental health. So I went on YouTube and I tried to find someone to inspire me, to get me going. And I found Pedro Zamora. 
He's a Cuban-American. He was also diagnosed at 17. He immigrated in the States. And he eventually wound up on Real Real World San Francisco, um, TV show by uh, by MTV. And he came out about being gay. He eventually came out about being HIV positive. He testified before Congress. uh, And he was talking about how we reform sex ed, how we change the way we talk about sex in schools. Like he was saying how one of the kids asked him a question um, when he was going around the country talking about HIV, his status, and sex education, that one of the kids asked, so if I have a cut on my finger and I finger my girlfriend, will she, and, and, and I'm, um, and she's HIV positive or I am HIV positive, will HIV be transmitted? And he's like talking about, like, we don't use that language and we, we need to use that um, language that we can actually relate to them and connect to the students. One of the things he told Congress was, what we need is the collective will to care about young people and about people with different backgrounds and make sure that one day people grow up in a world without AIDS. What we need is the collective will to care. I saw his documentary and the movie on him as well. Um, The documentary, by the way, is um, MTV's tribute to Pedro Samora. You can look it up on YouTube. And what really spoke to me was when he said, I'm a person living with AIDS, and I'll be living with AIDS until I take my last breath. Through his whole story, Pedro had made me feel like I wasn't a slut. I felt empowered. I felt like actually I was given an opportunity to to do something with my status. I felt useful um, that I was worth it. And I remember sitting through my last sex ed class in your year, and I was so pissed. I was so angry because my classmates were laughing and they were just dismissing this as something that wasn't worth their time, that wasn't relevant to them. This is something that happens to other people. This happens somewhere else. This isn't a problem. And I was trying not to cry and I was so furious and I wanted to come out and I wanted to shove it in their face. I wanted to say, this is something that's happening in your community right now. You're sitting next to someone who's positive. Your age, going to your high school, going to the same classes, having the same teachers, eating in the same cafeteria, sitting in the same chairs. I mean, this is happening right here. And I, Obviously, I didn't. That wouldn't have been. They wouldn't have worked. Um, they were like, "What the hell?" Okay. And I was walking through the hallways, and the the hallways are really crowded in between periods. And I remember people were, you know, we rub up against each other, bumping into each other, you know. And I'm rolling my sleeves down because I, even though I knew I, 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 you can't transmit um, HIV through skin contact. That it's through breast milk. Uh, seminal fluid, pre-seminal fluid, vaginal fluid, and blood. Just a plug, by the way, <laughs> for the audience. <laughs> it's not transmitted through skin contact, but the shame and, and, and feeling like a slut is so pervasive 
from our culture that I just, I, I, I felt that. But in that same moment, in this moment of cognitive dissonance, I was also swearing to myself two things, that I would do my best not to transmit my HIV strain to anyone and that I would come out about my status and I would come back to my high school and talk about my HIV. And so that, that was, that was that. And then I, I, I came out to my parents and I, again, I was very lucky because we had a, my psychiatrist had them come into our session so that he could be there so that they could have a doctor say, Hey, your kid's going to be okay. But that was amazing that I had him there, but my my parents were devastated. I mean, again, feeling helpless for the second time. What can they do for their kid? But they were supportive. Always. It was hard for them to swallow. And they went with me for my first doctor appointment. I had been going to this nonprofit called the Nova Juniper, a great nonprofit. Um, and that I actually had been connected to by the Norwegian AIDS ministry. Novam did like everything, they were amazing. <laughs> so they went with me to that appointment and my mom went to the future appointments with my new doctor, HIV specialized doctor. I was on meds and my viral load um, became undetectable. And what that is, is a viral load is the amount of virus in your, in your body. Um, and undetectable means the virus gets to such a low level that conventional testing can no longer can no longer detect the level of the virus in your system. And that means that you are not infectious. My HIV did not progress to AIDS, um, but my viral load became indetectable, my T-cell counts went up, I was healthy, and I've been healthy with my HIV since, um, since then, which is 2009, so it's been like 11, 10 years now. So what do you do to care for yourself now? Are you just, are you, do you just stay on medication and then is that the primary treatment or are there other things that you do? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. I just take one pill a day. I have no side effects. Um, I don't even have to worry about eating with or without food. I just got to take it at the same time every single day. Um, which now, is, is this something amazing. That, and I think I know the answer, but I kind of want to ask, is this something that's like curable this is something versus this is something you're going to live with for your life but you since we have medication now it, it won't progress to aids is that like which which one is it i guess that is a long topic mm -hmm. and it's complicated um right now um they're doing research for a functional cure versus a sterilizing cure a sterilizing cure is when the virus is completely eliminated from your body um right now we can't do that um, but we're looking for a functional cure where we can have the immune system keep the virus in check without medication. That's the closest so far that we think we're going to get to a cure. Um, that may happen in the next 10 or 20 years. Um, right now we're focusing on getting everyone who is HIV positive on medication. And the only way to do that is that everyone gets tested. Um, so that they can be connected to care and start their medication because the medication is very good nowadays It was terrible in the 90s. The medications killed you um, And it's an amazing the progress you've made But we need you have to actually be on that medication in order to um, Get your viral load to an undetectable level become uninfectious and live a long healthy life So right now like we're focusing on just getting everyone virally suppressed, which is what that means to be undetectable um so that we have a an, an an 
HIV-free generation in the sense that there are no new positive, new, new HIV infections, and that everyone is on medication who is an HIV positive. Um, but basically, I, I'm just going to be taking this medication for the rest of my life. And all I have to do is take one pill a day, and then I can forget about it, as long as I stop talking about it. And I have not ta stopped talking about my HIV status for like five years, so I'm never going to forget that I'm HIV positive. But some people do. They live, they go throughout their day, and they have a moment, like, oh, I, I'm taking my, my, my pills because I am HIV positive. Wow. It's That's amazing. Great. It is yeah. amazing. Um, so um, that, that's my treatment. It's been really easy. Um, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. He is amazing. I'm lucky. I'm lucky to have been diagnosed when and where I was diagnosed. When in 2009 and where in, in DC where there's an abundance of resources. Um, and quite honestly, my life living with HIV so far is an exception. Um, most people are not as lucky as I am. I am with the support network, with finding doctors right away, and you know having health insurance to be able to afford the medication because it costs, um, you know, anywhere from twenty-five to forty-five thousand a year. Oof. Mine costs thirty-six. Wow. Um. So uh, without insurance, like you, you cannot not have insurance. And right now, my premiums are six hundred fifty-six dollars a month. Wow. And if I didn't have the Virginia Department of Health subsidizing it then you know and that was something that took 60 hours of research just to get to that point to have that covered and not everyone has that some HIV positive people they have two three jobs they don't have the time to spend hours and hours researching and going to three or four nonprofits just to get approved and and to find the health insurance that's right for them and this is not what people around the country who are HIV positive are experiencing I've met well over 100 HIV positive people of every demographic, men, women, of every race, of sexual orientation, either through my support groups that I've been in um, or through meeting through supports like social networks and, and like this is not the norm. So, um, I mean, that's why I eventually came out, which um, leads to the next part, which, you know, I went to JMU. Um, I struggled at JMU academically, and I think it was a mistake for me to start right away because I had was still struggling with my identity around my HIV diagnosis and um, what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. <laughs> I went to get uh, my degree. I was trying to get my degree in international relations because that's what my mom did, um, and um, she inspired me. Like she had her job, but she worked there for thirty years, and towards uh, part of her. Um, job she did um, worked on human trafficking around South America um, with the IDB and um, and she was doing all this humanitarian work and so she was like my hero <laughs> yeah she sounds incredible yeah I wanted to be like her <laughs> um, but the degree didn't work out I and what happened was here's the timeline so November of 2011 I I found the Madison HIV AIDS Alliance and this is where, this was the starting point of my advocacy. This is what propelled me. They took me to my first AIDS Walk Washington, which was, um, it is, is a, a, a walk fundraiser for Wim Walker Health, which is an LGBT HIV specialized um, 
nonprofit um, prevention, um, healthcare, education in in uh, DC. I had been involved with them. There, there was there was that was the first nonprofit that I got um, tested with. They were the nonprofit where I found my HIV mentor, um, Justin Goforth, who had been at that time diagnosed with HIV for 25 years, and he was like my example as to why. One of the many people at Walker that inspired me to to want to be a social worker, um, and I volunteered there for a couple months, and I was just uh, connected with them for a long time. So they meant a lot to me, and so that I was able to go on that walk, participate it was really special. But what really what happened the moment I think that made me think I could actually achieve my dream and I should go for it, of of you know being an advocate or an activist for HIV was those thousands and thousands of people that were there was like an electrifying because even though they didn't know me, they didn't know that I was HIV positive. Um, I knew they cared about me um, and that they were going to judge me and that they accept me and that they all wanted to make a difference and that I could be a part of that. I felt like I belonged somewhere and so when I went back to JMU after the walk in in DC and the Madison HIV AIDS Alliance offered me to be on a panel to come out about my HIV status I was terrified but I said yes why do you think you said yes I felt like this was my chance um I could I could finally try to remember remember Pedro in the way of um you know his story and his life and death not being a waste and the lives and and deaths of you know 1.2 million Americans through the AIDS epidemic that I can do something meaningful with my status. I could leverage my privilege and I could come out like I've always wanted to. Did and you feel like you were ready at this point to talk about it or was it still no. pretty scary? Yeah. <laughs> it was terrifying. Yeah. Um, I didn't think I was going to be like beaten up or like, you know, um, kicked out of school or like, you know, um, discriminated against. Um, what was the main worry? I don't know. Just people, I don't know. Just being judged. I, there's so much, um, shame and stigma around HIV. And I just, I don't know. I was just afraid of being judged and, um, dating was going to be even, more difficult because then people weren't going to give me a chance because they already knew my status so they wouldn't even let me have the conversation I mean I always disclose my status but sometimes I want to give the chance to person to get to know me uh, who Absolutely. I am first and be like huh um, I don't know how I feel about HIV but this person seems you know cool nice maybe maybe I should question my bias and if I come out you know and people here, they might, I might not get that chance. Um, and maybe, maybe it would risk employment. 
Mm. With the food industry, if people are, even though that's not legal, I've, they're determined enough, they won't hire me. Mm. They really don't want to. Um, so I was just scared. But I, 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 at the last minute, I, I had cold feet. But then I, I was on the panel. It was called um, um, Positively Speaking, My Life with HIV was the name of the panel. There were three of us on there. And the room was packed. Um, I don't know, there must have been 60, 70 people. Um, and they were like sitting on the floor. There weren't <laughs> chairs. And I was wow. like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my so God. So this oh was God. something people wanted to hear about. No one was on their phone. Their eyes were glued. There was this was someone that was a part of their community. This was relevant to them. I maybe I sat in one of their classes. I definitely ate in the same, um, you know, food courts and stuff, uh, cafeterias. Um, this wasn't some someone somewhere else. So do you think this is the first time a lot of them had heard? Yes, about, absolutely. You know, heard especially straight from someone that's HIV positive. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that's powerful. And there was three of us there. Yeah. And it gave them a whole, like, um, you know, like, it was a woman um, who was there too. Um, and and uh, another another guy. I mean, it was like a more of a um, diverse panel. So they couldn't just pin it down to like only one stereotype, yeah. getting being HIV positive, and their stories were compelling. They were inspiring. They were eye-opening. What do you think it is about people sharing their stories that makes it more relatable? It's the human factor. Um. I, I, that makes specifically HIV, because it's like an acronym that you see, that you vaguely hear about, and, um, and you don't even know, maybe you don't even know the difference between HIV and AIDS, and it's just sort of just like nebulous, whatever thing, oh yeah, people get it through sex, and, you know, or and then they die of AIDS, and, um, and it's happening in this continent, or this country, or this group of people, um, and when you hear someone's story, it, it puts the human and human immunodeficiency virus, it, it, it puts a face to the acronym. And the way I see it is it's, there's this massive ribbon because the red ribbon is for mm-hmm. HIV, but instead of red, it is filled with millions and millions of tiny faces, portraits of people who are HIV positive. Um, and every time, you know, if you zoom back, you can't see anything. You can't see anyone's faces. You don't know what's going on. But every time someone tells your story, it's like, uh, it's like on the computer, like the their profile uh, picture uh, zooms in for a second, and you can see their face, and you see that that there's a person behind that 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 ribbon, that disease, and then. And then it goes back in. And every time you hear a different story, it's just pulling out all of these kinds of people who just happen to have HIV. And it just makes it something that's more empathy-provoking. And that's why I, I talk about it. Because um, 
I just want to add one more story to the millions sure. of stories that belong to that. Yeah. That's um, fantastic. I like that visual, too. Yeah. Of the zooming out and the ribbon and everything. Yeah. So after the panel, what other sorts of things have you been doing advocacy-related for sex education reform? Well, I finally actually started my advocacy after my cancer. I was I, I had a prognosis of cancer and I had to leave um, JMU and I was eventually diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. Thankfully, it was a very easy process for me. I was stage two. The chemotherapy was a breeze for me personally. Um, and it was uh, not, not that hard. Um, but I bring that up um, because, you know, it affected my, my mental health and I had to, I had to, um, get treated. Um, and it, it just sort of gave me a jolt, a little scare. Like I needed to start doing something with my life. And so I started, um, with the Northern Virginia AIDS ministry. So I came back full circle <laughs> and I went on their face-to-face program, the same face-to-face program that brought me the first two HIV positive people that I had seen before. And um, I went talking around um, Northern Virginia public schools. And I mean, it was incredible because it was so clear that the teachers and the students weren't the problem. The teachers really wanted, even if they had biases, even if they were not trained or educated, they did want their kids to have comprehensive sex ed, even if they had different opinions on what that was. Um, The students were listening. They would ask questions, you know, when it wasn't like 7 a.m. and like they were already asleep from the beginning. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) Just not wanting to be there. When they had the energy, (laughs) they were engaging um, and and they really cared about their sexual health. Um, and then I, I I was doing that for a year with Novam and I went the second to last gig that I had before they lost their funding was my high school. (laughs) And I remember being there and walking through the, the school's doors and I felt this rush. I had the biggest smile on my face and I tears were streaming and I felt like I had finally arrived I mean that was like a life dream I couldn't believe I I couldn't (laughs) believe that I was there how many years had it been since you were a student there oh god um four years Mm. lots happened in the four years too yeah a lot happened (laughs) I was in a totally different place. Yeah. And my teachers were there, the two teachers that I had. And and they were very supportive. And um, I just remember in that moment that I felt like I was finally remembering Pedro and that I was... I, I had taken that chance and that opportunity to do something with my status and it felt so amazing then um they you know i i they lost the funding um a couple things happened that were eye-opening where um the middle school kids um 
um, one of the schools, they actually made a poster for me. <laughs> and that was amazing. Um, and then another time, a 15-year-old girl, she was a sophomore, she actually came out as HIV positive to one of the social workers. Um, and it was clear that this is still a problem. Um, that we needed to keep doing this. So, um, anyways, um, I, I, I didn't do it for three more years. Um, and then I, I just recently started with Nova Salute, um, which is an, um, LGBT Latino specialized HIV prevention and education nonprofit in, uh, Northern Virginia. Uh, you can go to novasaluteinc.org. <laughs> uh, I've been doing speaking with them and going to Arlington uh, Public Schools. Um, I spoke with, uh, did six panels with the George um, Washington University for um, um, Dr. Charles Seminow, where he did a um, human sexuality course for first-year med students, and they had a adolescent and young adult, the sexually active adolescent and young adult panel um, and just to expose doctors to like being addressing sexual health with their patients and positive and negative experiences and having expert panelists there. I did that six times. The one that I that I would say was the most validating was when I was invited. I, I was I was in a cab meeting. Um, I'm on the community advisory board for Women Walker Health and um, the, the chair invited me to speak on the um, George uh, Washington University's um, HIV Summit um, and is speaking on the opening um, plenary session panel. And I was speaking just before uh, Dr. Fauci, the director of the NEH. Wow. I couldn't believe I was there. I mean, <laughs> it was like been nine years since I was diagnosed and so much has happened and I would have never... When in that moment I was diagnosed in the Alexandria Hospital, I would have never imagined that I would have been in that moment. And so, you know, um, I also, since then, I've joined the GC Center for AIDS Research Community Advisory Board. I do, I do some activism with some people for the LGBT community. I've done a couple of panels. One um, for the, at the Maryland Music Educators Association Conference. I was, for my, the band that I'm a part of, the Capital Pride Symphonic Band, we did a a panel to um, for the music educators to teach them how to be more inclusive in their classrooms. Um, and I'm also on the board of uh, DC's Different Drummers, um, which is an LGBT uh, musical ensembles organization. And um, so I'm, you know, I'm very passionate about that. Um, and I one other thing before. Um, I uh, just joined as, uh, joined as co-chair for the, um, Arlington Young Democrats uh, Health Education and Environment uh, Caucus, and I'm hoping to have this, uh, hopefully this 360, uh, wholesome approach, um, to, um, health education and the environment. So I'm terrified, but I'm looking forward to that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Uh, and then APSER. Yes. Yeah. Um, the Arlington Parents for Sex Education Reform. Um, I had, as an, a nonprofit, or, sorry, <laughs> let me start. 
Arlington um, Parents for Sex Education Reform is a nonpartisan uh, group that I am starting in reaction to the Virginia uh, General Assembly rejecting the uh, HB 159 this past session, um, which would have mandated uh, comprehensive medically accurate sex education, because Virginia is one of the 39 states that do not require sex ed to be medically accurate when it's taught. And they they shot that down. Um, so I was like, well, okay, if they're not going to do it statewide, then I guess we'll get it done in Arlington. <laughs> and I think parents are part of the equation. Uh, I think they're the ones that are left out of the equation so often because they're dismissed as um, being a part of the problem because, oh, you know, they are like, opting their kids out of sex ed and you know they're they're not teaching it at home and da da da, da. and I, I don't think that has anything to do with the quality of their parenting or their intelligence or any of those things is every parent wants the best for their for their kid every parent does uh, I think it's because uh, the reason why they do things like oh okay a parent ends up um, opting out their kids out is because they were robbed of the sex education that they so rightly deserved as children. And so here, I, I want to give a platform to break that cycle, um, where parents are actually the ones leading the way and demanding that the Arlington County Board um, passes a re resolution to declare Arlington's commitment to sex education reform, um, to tell the school board that they need to instruct the advisory board to rewrite the Arlington's sex education curriculum, or as they call it, family life education. <laughs> I'm sorry, but that is like the most vague <laughs> name. What are we talking about? Sex or like conflict resolution with my parents? Like, right. anyways, <laughs> but to instruct the advisory board to rewrite, um, to rewrite that um, to be medically accurate, because it's not in Arlington. Um, even though it is better um, considerably than the rest of the localities in Virginia's um, sex education, that is not a good metric. That should be a metric where we're like, oh, this is great. Let's be glad that it's better here and appreciate that, that we have that. But it should not um, inspire complacency and apathy and be like, oh, well, it's better than this really low, sad bar. <laughs> um, so we don't need to do anything about it. So I'm hoping um, parents will um, feel like, hey, my voice is important, is worth it, and I should have a say in what my kids are learning in schools. So here's the Absolutely. platform for it. That's fantastic. So they can go to um, apositivevoice.com forward slash APSER, A-P-S-E-R, and to find out more and to also sign up if they're interested in just learning more or if they would like to volunteer. Um, regardless of your parental status or zip code, you have something to offer to the organization. So Yeah, I think that's important, too, that you don't have to be a parent to help no. out. Yeah, mm -mm. like I know it's called Arlington Parents, but you don't have to be a parent. There's lots that you can get involved with. Exactly, yeah. I mean, we need um, organizers, event planners. We need um, people for, you know, web and IT um, and outreach. We need student liaisons. Um, from Arlington to advise um, the um, the the group on you know on issues relating to students and their perspective and teachers to be liaisons um, 
um, it's going to be a community effort that is um, spearheaded by parents. So perfect. Yeah. And I, I had a question about the house bill that didn't pass. Yeah. Um, so I think this is maybe part of my like ignorance on the issue. Like I didn't know that it wasn't a law that it had to be medically accurate. Same. I mean, doesn't that seem like something that would be there? And you're saying you said 39 states don't have a law that it has to be medically accurate. Correct. Interesting. Okay. So. Well, we're not even talking about mandating here. We're not even touching the fact about that it's not mandated. Mm -hmm. Just medically accurate if it is taught. That it's required. Got it. So it's not even like, oh, well, mandating. That's like a whole nother thing. Sorry. Right. Go ahead. No, it's fine. My question is, do you know why it didn't pass? Do you know the reasons against that type of thing? Because I know, and I think maybe you want to go into or explain a little bit more about it, but I know you said it was like a party line vote. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering, what are what are the stances against it? So, um, the stances against, um, first of all, medically accurate... Um, Meaning, uh, you know, not having curriculum that stresses or um, teaches abstinence only until marriage. Um, um, Melissa Meadows from Virginia um, Planned Parenthood said that it studies have shown that abstinence only until marriage actually increases the risk that a young person will experience an unplanned pregnancy. Um, it actually, you would think if you tell kids, Hey, don't have sex, um, in a more constructive way, uh, that they would be like, okay, maybe I should have sex less, but they're not, they're having sex more. Um, and, and at a young age, um, but their argument is, is that if you teach, uh, kids that it is an option, um, that you can be abstinent, which is a hundred percent, uh, guarantee that you will not uh, contract an STD as well as not sharing needles, um, you know, to not contract HIV, but abstinence is that a hundred percent way to guarantee that. Um, and also, but if you are ready and if you decide to have sex, here are the safe ways to do it, to guarantee that you don't get an STD. Um, that if you have that option, that it's actually promoting kids to have sex. And, um, also sometimes there's a, a religious argument where it's, um, immoral to have sex before marriage, and so they br- br- bring religion into our school curriculum, um, which should be illegal. <laughs> um, and so they they're arguing that the 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 only way to prevent unplanned pregnancies and STDs is by telling kids to get to wait till they get married um, and, and be abstinent, which is sexist. Because it is telling women that they need to cross their legs and wait until a man proposes them, proposes to, uh, to them to marry, um, because that's our culture. Um, it, I don't think women need women can ask men to marry, um, but that's not our stereotype, and certainly not in conservative circles. And also, it's homophobic because when this curriculum was written, same-sex marriage was illegal. So me and my. Um, gay peers are being told that we could never have sex. Um, but the argument is if you teach kids that they're, that you can have sex, if you have it safely, then 
then they will pr promote and encourage kids to have sex. Um, which is incorrect. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, and if you, if I had asked that, that committee and I had asked everyone to raise their hands, um, who had waited to have sex before they got married, if they're married, how many of them, <laughs> if they honestly answered, honestly answered, yeah, would, would have <laughs> raised their hands. Right. So it's a do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> and it promotes, um, more unplanned pregnancies and, um, you know, youth being infected with STDs. Um, yeah. Do you think our current political climate is affecting, is affecting people's viewpoints surrounding HIV and sex ed reform in any way? I think to say that would be... Because I, I do think that there is definitely maybe um, more candidates who are um, leaning and definitely more conservative on sex ed that are being elected, and that um, with um, the Trump administration slashing $50 million from the CDC's um, national um, HIV prevention uh, um, funds um, does give an air of HIV is not important, um, or doesn't need to be addressed, and that... STD um, and um, infections don't need to be addressed. I, I, I think that is creating that climate and is making it worse. But I think to say that he is the Trump administration, the president himself, or the Republican Party is um, making that a reality now is delusional because we've had this problem for three decades. And we've been trying to... And by when I say we, I mean they from the activists and the people who lived and died, um, lived with and died of um, HIV in the 80s and 90s and 2000s, those people who have been working super hard have been shouting at the government that this is important, we need help. Um, so I think we need to move away from the fact and stop trying to point that out, that that oh this administration is creating a an environment where you know um they're slashing funds for hiv prevention and and that they're creating a, a climate where sex ed reform will be harder to pass it is true but let's stop talking about that and just realize that we always need to be working on this because this has always been a problem yeah so um, do you think the fight is more at the local level I do. Um, I do think the, the fight is at this um, local and state level. Do I think that, the, the, that sex ed should be mandated, that some guidelines should be mandated statewide, uh, um, nationwide? Yes. I think maybe sometimes there are localities where the sex, curriculum, sex ed curriculum needs to be adjusted specific to that community for their specific problems or demographics, etc. But there are some basics like abstinence only does not work. That should not be legal in schools. Abstinence included in the curriculum. Yes, not abstinence only. Um, there are some things federally that we need to make law in public schools where our taxes are going. Um, and But they're, they're, we need to fight this at the state and local level depending on what your um, state's situation is. Um, some states like Virginia, Virginia 
um, does not mandate uh, their, the guidelines that they write out to actually be followed by the localities, nor do they mandate it to be taught. Nine localities in Virginia don't teach sex ed at all. And a lot of them d can just scrap the guidelines that the Virginia um, Board of Education um, sets out and just teach whatever they want. Um, they require that um, the school advisory board uh, that writes the the curriculum has to have a um, person of the clergy on the board, which should be legal because there should no, be no religion involved in in our schools. And that's separation of church and state. Um, and religious values should have no place in preventing um, STDs, HIV, and un planned pregnancies when it comes to our public school curriculum. So um, that's Virginia's situation. Some, some, some uh, states maybe ha have their board of education uh, mandate their guidelines statewide. And so you need to go to your state legislature to, to pass a reform. Um, but here in Virginia, we can either do that locally or at the state level. So yes. Great. So if people are listening that want to get involved and obviously join APSER, that would be amazing if you're in the Arlington or surrounding areas. Yes. Um, do you do you have any other ways that people can get involved? Maybe if they're not as local to Arlington, or maybe what are the steps that someone might take if they're interested in in helping with sex education reform in their own in their own states? Um, well, first, um, find out what the curriculum is if they're if it's. Um, medically accurate or not mandated, um, you can call schools or you can simply just look up um, the sex ed curriculum online of your state that should be available. For Virginia, it's called family life education. It might not be called the same thing in your state. Um, and then find out when, um, if it needs to be reformed, um, you can either go to your school board public meetings, go on the school board website, um, of your county and see when those public meetings are and, you know, advocate for the um, sex ed to, uh, curriculum to be changed or um, find out when your legislative sessions are for your state a legislature and uh, advocate it for bills. You can introduce bills or advocate for an existing bills that are being proposed to um, reform sex education. Um, you can also go to um, Planned Parenthood's website, and they can definitely tell you all of the problems with the sex ed in your state or county. <laughs> um, if you're lucky enough to be in a state where it's um, if where it's great, then <laughs> don't move. <laughs> but uh, and then you can also um, find your uh, local or state legis legislator and tell them that um, if you know if there are any f uh, uh, bills that are up. Um, Tell them that you uh, that you care about those sex ed reform bills, and you can also go to local clinics and uh, nonprofits that do HIV testing prevention, um, education. I know there's one in in Arlington um, County that's actually a, a, a local chapter of a nationwide organization called Pave, promoting awareness and victim empowerment, which teaches um, consent, um, sexual assault, uh, and and rape. Um, for um, students in schools to learn about how they can advocate that for themselves and 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 communicate and find help. So uh, go to um, PAVE's website or 
go to um, Planned Parenthood. There are many ways you can get involved. Those are all great suggestions. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank I you really so much for having it. me. And thank you so much for being so open about your story and your advocacy with sex ed reform. And I think it's really super important and I admire the work that you do. So thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Community Voices. We're listening. Please click that subscribe button if you want to hear more from us and leave us a review. You can find us at our website, communityvoicespod.com. You can email us at communityvoicespod at gmail.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram at communityvoicespod. Thank you again for listening, and we will talk to you soon.